Thank you, David. Morning, Arcadia. Uh, thanks for being here this morning. Uh, for those of you that are new, your first time, my name is Frank, and I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, before we get started, uh, just a couple of things I want to mention or acknowledge. Uh, first of all, it's really wonderful to have Sean Johnson back, but I, I was just reminded this morning with him leading uh, and how wonderful it, the music is here, and it really is, especially for a congregation our size. It's, it's top-notch. Um, it's really wonderful, though, that when he goes away, we have such seamlessness in the leadership. Two weeks ago, we had Troy lead us, and it was great. Last week, we had Josh lead us, and that was the first time that Josh had ever led this congregation, and uh, it was wonderful. And so I, just, uh, I want to just give a huge shout-out to the people that do our music ministry and lead us in worship. They really, all of them are, are really wonderful and terrific and, and do a great job, and, and we appreciate them. Yeah, that's okay. Go, go right ahead. It's, it is good. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that we're in a time of, uh, this, is, this happens every year about this time, uh, we're in a time of transition in our children's ministry because uh, the way people's schedules work, especially those who have children and then work in children's ministry, uh, is that there's the school year and then there's the, there's the summertime, sort of. And we're starting to get into that time when school is ending and summer starts. And, and with that, people's schedules get all messed up. And, and so what we find is that in May... We have a tremendous need for a, an influx of children's ministry volunteers uh, because the people who were able to work in children's ministry during the school year struggle to be able to do that during the summer months, which would be pretty much mid-May through uh, mid-August. And so we're starting to get into that time. And so if you could help us out in the children's ministry uh, for the next uh, three months. That would be really helpful to us, uh, and we just ask you to go down and see Linda Longmire, who is uh, the director of the children's ministry down there, and she would appreciate that so much. It, it's just a matter of scheduling, and this happens every year, and then again, we'll have another little sort of upheaval in, uh, at the beginning of August as well as those schedules begin to change again. It's just the vicissitudes of life, and so uh, we would appreciate if you could help us with that. Uh, well, my name uh, is Frank. Did I mention my name is Frank? Hi, I'm Frank. So anyway, we're in, a, in the midst of a sermon. We had part one last week, and if you were not here last week, I would really encourage you to go onto our website, website and download the sermon so that you don't just hear uh, what we're doing is we're doing two weeks on the issue of homosexuality, and we don't want you to just hear uh, today's sermon without the context of last week's as well. But even more important, I would say, uh, because we are walking through the book of Romans verse by verse, in many respects, what we're in the midst of is a little four-week mini-series on this passage of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where Paul just describes what happens when we decide as human beings, and we all do this, to disorder what God has ordered in a particular way. And we disorder it in a variety of ways, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but but it, it is important for us to understand the two verses that we look at today, which specifically deal with male and female homosexuality. That would be verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up for dishonorable passions. Their, men exchanged, their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And their men likewise exchanged natural relations with women and became consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with other men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Those two verses need to be seen within the context, the greater context, of not only Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, but I would even say verses 16 through 32, where Paul begins with the power of the gospel. And, and we're going to get into that in just a second. But last week, what we talked about primarily was the theology of homosexuality. And there's still going to be a little bit of that in today's message. But primarily today's message, we are directing more towards the church towards those of us who would claim Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are going to speak specifically to Christians and talk about, for the most part, uh, our reaction and our attitude towards this issue of homosexuality and homosexuals in particular. We need to have a, a good biblical understanding uh, of that. The other thing that I would mention is it's very difficult, even in two weeks, some of us wanted 10 weeks to unpack this issue, it's very difficult, even in two weeks, to answer all the questions and deal with all the issues that we need to deal with, uh, not only in this forum, but especially if you just want to talk about this one-on-one. And so we recognize that. And so I want you to understand that our staff, the elders, the pastors, everybody, we are available to have conversations with you. And in fact, we have already entered many conversations as a result of starting this uh, message last week. And we are happy for that. We, we don't want to shut down dialogue. We want to open it up. And we recognize that only in community, through relationship and through dialogue, can we really work uh, through many of these things. So I would encourage you, if you have further questions, to go ahead and contact us. Uh, but then also I would encourage you to be patient patient with uh, when we can respond to you. Most of us would prefer to do this in person. I know I am much better in person than through email uh, on an issue like this, and so I will want to meet with you uh, in person to have this discussion, whatever that discussion might uh, be, but be patient with us because there's only six or seven of us and there's six or seven hundred of you, and so uh, just be patient. Uh, the fact that it might take us a little bit to get to you is in no way an indication of our desire not to be with you. It is, it is our deepest desire uh, to be with you. So here we go. It, open your Bibles if you haven't already to Romans chapter 1. I want to take us through again the broader passage verses 16 through 32 and make some comments about that and kind of set up the, um, set up the context again for what we're going to talk about uh, today. So right out of the gate uh, after Paul sort of does his introductory stuff in this letter, he moves into the thesis statement of this entire letter, verses 16 and 17, where he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power for, of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the reason it's important to start here is because, frankly, verses 18 through 32 can be a little depressing. It's all about how much, well, how bad we are as human beings. And although Paul uses this language that makes it sound like he's talking about somebody else in verses 18 through 32, he's talking about the human condition. He's talking about all of us in one way, shape, or form or another. All of us go through, to some extent, what is happening in verses 18 through 32, and he wants us to know that there is one answer 
for this disorder that we engage in in verses 18 through 32. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only answer. That's the only thing we got. And so we have to look at that and state that first. And then he gets into it. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the reason we are ungodly and unrighteous is for this very reason. Who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Literally, we see the truth of God everywhere around us. We cannot deny it. We are without excuse. Scripture says it is plain to us, and we know inherently that it's plain to us. And yet what we do is that we suppress that truth. Uh, as Sean described a couple of weeks ago, he said that Greek word literally means that you bind up the truth on purpose. You knowingly hogtie the truth and set it aside, and then you go off claiming your freedom. But in fact, the freedom that we claim is only a road to destruction. That's all it is. And so, uh, verse 19, he continues. Uh, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made, so they, we, you and I, are totally, completely without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's what Paul is saying. Instead of worshiping the one true God who is evidenced by all of creation, we have decided that we're going to worship what He created. In other words, we're going to worship ourselves. We're going to set ourselves on that throne that God is only rightfully supposed to be in. We're going to remove him, hogtie that truth, and we're going to set ourselves on that throne and begin to worship ourselves and our desires. And so then verse 24 starts this this, um, series where Paul says three different times that for this reason, because we fail to acknowledge God as God and we are worshiping ourselves, he is going to, God is going to give us up or give us over. Uh, The word is paradokin, and literally what it means is he is going to remove his loving, caring, and guiding hand from us, not because he's a capricious, angry God, but because you and I have asked him to do that. We suppressed his truth and we've said, God, we know better, I know better, I know my context, I know my truth, I know my reality, it's better than yours, you don't know me as well as as I know me, I know what's best for me, and God says, okay, I'm going to let you have it your way, I'm going to give you up. And so the first one is in verse 24, he says, therefore God gave them up, in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So the first problem of him giving us up is that we become impure and, and, and we do, what we do is we dishonor our bodies among ourselves. And this is a description of all the different things that we are willing to do our, do our bodies in, in, in the name of self-worship and pleasure that actually damages us. It damages ourselves, it damages our relationship with God, it damages our relationship with others, and it even damages our relationship with creation. And it's talking about all kinds of different sin there, but especially it's talking about pride, idolatry, and all manner of sexual sin. 
And he says in verse 25, they do this because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed, blessed forever. Amen. So we worship ourselves and not God. And then verse 26 is the second time, the second way, the second reason that God gives us up is he gives us up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Uh, that little phrase there in the Greek, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. See, here you go. Most of us think that the wrath of God is going to be like this, this lightning bolt from heaven. But in fact, when, when God reveals his wrath from heaven, what he does is he just gives us what we want and then we have to live in the misery of our sin. That is actually what wrath is. It's God simply giving us what we want. And then verse 28, the third time. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, we refuse to worship God as God. We refuse to give him his rightful place on his throne. God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, we will spend more time next week unpacking what this means, this debased mind. But you have to know, just by hearing debased mind, that can't possibly be good. But that's what he gives, it, gives us up to. It's our own futile thinking to do what ought not to be done. And then Paul says that these things that ought not to be done, he lists 21 more sins, 21 additional sins in addition to pride and selfishness and idolatry and, and sexual sin and homosexuality. In addition to that, the further downward spiral of the human condition is that we are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then verse 32 is very important as well. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. In other words, they deserve spiritual death. They deserve to be separated from God forever. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They stand on the sidelines and they cheer other people while they engage in sin. And Paul says that's a sin as well. So, here's what Paul, one of the things that Paul's trying to get across in, in, in chapter 1 of Romans. He's saying, look, when God created the universe, chapters 1 and chapters two, chapter 2 of, of uh, Genesis... He created it in a particular way, the divinely created order, and it was good. It was good. It was very good. But then in Genesis chapter 3, the humans come along, and they disobey God. They commit the original sin, and from that point on, everything is corrupt. Everything is debased. Everything is fallen. It's known as the fall. It's the original sin. And as a result, from that time on, every one of us is born into a state of sin. We're not born into a state of holiness which we lose through our sin. We are born into this state of sin. We're already sinners because of the sin nature that's in us. The Bible's very clear on that. And because of that, everything that we do has become disordered. Our worship is disordered. The way we live our lives is disordered. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. And as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, you and I are born and become alienated from four different things in our lives that are very important. Because of the disordering context of sin, you and I are alienated from God. 
We are alienated from ourselves, we are alienated from others, and we are alienated from the creation itself. It's all screwed up. It's not like sin just tinges us a little bit. It, 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 it corrupts everything, every important and every unimportant relationship that we have. Therefore, we need to understand that all sin is a disordering of the created order, and sin is always a playing out of our alienation to God, to ourselves, to others, and to creation. So, you all propped up and excited now to go forward? Does that help you? Is you in a good mood now? All right. So, with all of that in mind, setting the context, the question is what now? I, I want you to understand that it is our deepest desire not to win an argument or to make a point, but rather it is our deepest desire to present the power of the gospel and to deal honestly with not just the sin of homosexuality, but with all of these sins that we look at in Romans chapter 1. And we want to present the fact that we're going to keep coming back to this. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer. We want to make a difference, but not necessarily a point. But even in that, we are going to have to draw some distinctions. We have to recognize that. So we'll start with this question. This is a question that is frequently asked. And this one is specific to homosexuality. Are homosexuals to be excluded from the community of faith? And the answer is certainly not. But what everyone should also understand is that anyone, anyone who joins a community of faith, anyone who decides to come to church should know that it is going to be a place of transformation, discipling, learning, stretching, and challenging. In other words, you can't bring your sin in here and expect that it will never be dealt with, that you will never be challenged in that. We're not going to nurture you and coddle you in your sin. We're going to call you to a better life that God has for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's going to be a place of transformation. And if church isn't a place of transformation, there's no point. Okay? Very, very important. Wesley Hill, who is an author who struggles with sexual sin, and some would say, well, who doesn't? Okay? He makes the same point by writing this. One of the hardest to swallow, most countercultural, counterintuitive implications of the gospel is that bearing up under a difficult burden with patient perseverance is a good thing. It is a good thing. And that's for anybody who is a part of a church. There is no sin, no sin that gets a pass. That means, yes, even you gossipers, you need the gospel. Even those of you who are disobeying your parents, you need the gospel. Even those of you that are foolish, you need the gospel and you need it badly. Also, one of the most challenging things that all of us should realize about this gospel point of view on sexuality is that there is no right or unconditional guarantee of sexual fulfillment for any Christian believer. This idea that all people have a right to sexual fulfillment is a construct that we consumer Americans have placed unfairly on the church, on the gospel, on scripture, and on culture in general. It's just not realistic. Now, God, God does have a purpose and a plan for sex, and fulfillment can possibly come if we practice sex as God has created and ordained it, but there are still no guarantees. 
And frankly, all of us need a better understanding of what the Christian sexual ethic is. Because, I, again, I hear this all the time. The Christian sexual ethic can be summed up in one word. Don't. That is not the Christian sexual ethic. The Christian sexual ethic is within the proper context that God has created in his divinely created good order, which is heterosexual monogamous marriage. It is supposed to be celebration. So you don't have to turn there, but let me read to you uh, what, what uh, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 23 says about this, okay? Now, there's some metaphorical language in here, so you'll have to kind of hang in there until you get into the bulk of this to understand what he's really saying. Here we go, starting with verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. He's not talking about somebody who's thirsty, okay? Let's continue. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Here's what he's saying. Should you be having sex with a whole bunch of different people? And the answer would be no. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the, uh, the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of, of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly he is led astray. There's some parallels there, actually, to Romans chapter 1. If you go your own way, it will lead to destruction. In, in terms of sexuality, you need to go God's way. There's one other place that we could talk about. Uh, this would be uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me just read the first five verses to you there. So you're saying, well, what, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, Paul has something to say about it as well. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then he quotes something. He says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's quoting somebody, and we don't have the time to unpack that. But instead, here's what he says. He says, I get that, but here is the Christian sexual ethic. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In other words, the two shall become one flesh. When you enter into marriage, you give up your rights. And, and you start to trust each other in the gospel. And you start to pursue holiness together. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you might devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there's the Christian sexual ethic. It is to be played out in marriage, heterosexual monogamous marriage. Okay? Now, having said all that, I confess, if most churches and Christians were obs as obsessed with justice, poverty, the poor, the widow, and the orphan, as we are with sexuality, would not things in this world be a lot better? 
Thank you. I got an amen on that one. Yes, I would say they would be. We are so obsessed with sexuality that all this other really important stuff, not that sex isn't important, but all this other important stuff is getting left by the wayside. On the other hand, I would also say this. In the name of sexual freedom, I have personally seen more hurt and pain than in virtually any other area of life. And if you're willing to take God's word honestly, you'll see that scripture teaches that sexual sin can be the most devastating thing that we humans do to ourselves. Now notice I said to ourselves, not to other people. It can be damaging to other people as well, but so many of us fail to take into account how damaging sexual sin is to ourselves. Remember I said uh, uh, the the fall uh, disoriented and, and alienated us from ourselves? Well, here you go. It continues to absolutely fascinate me how many men and women, and and let me tell you, these are Christian men and women who come and talk to me who claim that there is nothing wrong with porn because it doesn't hurt anybody. Yet those same people I have found are pretty miserable. They're miserable with their sex life. They're miserable in their relational life. And many of them are deeply, deeply depressed Because why? Because this sin has alienated them from God and it's actually alienated them from themselves and it is dehumanizing the people that they're watching. Their porn has alienated themselves. Not to mention, by the way, I'm just going to throw this in here, uh, that the sin of porn does hurt others. Anything that dehumanizes and commodifies another human being is desperately wicked. And that's exactly what pornography does. And Paul's point in Romans 1 is that all sexual sin dehumanizes in some way. And the only place this sexual sin gets rectified is at the cross of Jesus, the gospel. And probably no other area of life needs Paul's 2 Corinthians chapter 10 admonishment more than sexual sin where he says, take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. When we get a sexual thought in our minds, the first place we should be taking that is to Jesus. Because the minute we take it anywhere else, that's when the trouble begins. We've got to take these thoughts captive to Jesus. Now, most, if not all, sexual sin has to do with our disordered understanding of relationships and ultimately our disordered understanding of our relationship with God. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that. Uh, The simple, devastating truth is that in our world, people view relationships pretty much in one way. And it's known by the acronym WIFM, W-I-I-F-M-M. Anybody know WIFM? Anybody know that? Yell it out. What's in it for me? That is how we view, and I will never say that out loud. Hey, I want to get into a relationship with you, but what's in it for me? That doesn't usually work as a good line to open up a relationship. But that's how our minds work. What's my benefit? What's my cost going to be? How am I going to profit from this relationship? This is how researchers George Holman, Holman, uh, John Tebow, and Harold Kelly have crassly put this in their research that has spanned more than 40 years. So many of us fancy ourselves as altruistic, loving, and caring people, but when push comes to shove, the reality is that we like to push and shove. And we will bail the minute we do not feel that our relational benefits are outdistancing our relational costs. That's the way we see relationships. That's why we, we regard relationships as disposable. We can always find a new one that might work better, we tell ourselves. 
That's why we don't want to work at relationship repair the way we need to. And the bigger problem is that that's how we approach our relationship with God. And I'm, God, I'm talking to Christians now. That's how we approach our relationship with God. Now, we all know, we all know inherently, there's no such thing as a good, authentic, worthwhile relationship without challenge, contradiction, confrontation, learning, stretching, and chiseling. Nevertheless, all of us, at some time or another, continue to to delude ourselves with fanciful thoughts of Stepford relationships. Now, again, Sean brought this up a couple of weeks ago. I want to expand on it just a little bit. Do you know what a Stepford relationship is? You know the story of the Stepford wives? A group of men got together and decided that they were tired of, of their wives having an opinion of their own and pushing back occasionally and, and contradicting them and, and offering a different point of view. And they didn't really like that. And so they decided to get rid of their wives and, and they came up with these robotic wives that were, that were perfectly shaped and they only pretty much had one response for everything that they said. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. I know some of you guys are like, where's that website? I'm, I, I'm not sure. Yes, it was a movie a couple of times and, and, a, and a novel, okay? Well, what the majority of us do, and again, I'm talking to Christians. What we do, we don't say this out loud, but this is what we do. We expect, assume, and demand that God is going to be a Stepford God. We don't like a God that contradicts us. We don't like a God that challenges us. We don't like a God that's going to chisel us and move us from one place to another. Instead, what we want is a God who listens to us and says, yes, dear, yes, dear. And we need to just think about this. If God is God, then he has all power and he is right in every decision that he makes. If that's not true, then he's not God. Well, the problem is, as Romans 1, 18 through 32 clearly states, is that we think we're the ones that have all the power and that we're right in every decision that we make because we think we're God. Now, I, I am not one to disagree with really smart people who are obviously being used by God in a tremendous way. Can you feel a butt coming? <laughs> Here it comes. But there's a pastor and an author a uh, famous speaker named Mark Driscoll. Some of you follow him and read him uh, in the Seattle area. Big, big group of churches that, that he leads. And, and I like a lot of his teaching, but there's one thing that he says that I totally disagree with. He says this quite often. He says, most people who say they are Christians are actually functional or practical atheists. Uh, we say we believe in Jesus Christ, but then we believe as if he doesn't exist. Uh, we, we behave as if he doesn't exist. So functionally or practically, we behave as if there is no God. So we're functional atheists. Like I said, I disagree with that. We're not functional atheists. Because what's the definition of an atheist? An atheist doesn't believe in God. The problem is is that we're behaving like we think we're God. We believe in God. We just think it's us. We worship our desires and ourselves all the while proclaiming Christ as Lord and King. And we do this because we think we know what's best, we think we know what's right, and we think we know what's just, and somehow we also think that we can control things. So if we approach our relationship with God, who has all power and is always correct, and ask him to submit to our desires and our futile thinking, aren't we going to be in trouble? And guess what? We are in trouble. Look around. Things are a mess. Furthermore, we know inherently that this approach to relationships does not work. And we know this why? 
Six or seven billion people in this world all think they're correct and all seeking their own interests, and it's not working well. This is why when Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others have in you the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. When he says that, he's saying, look, this world would be a lot better if we all had the gospel view of life, if we all had a gospel world view. And this is the central argument of Romans chapter 1. We're not the center of the universe. But when you and I think we are, that creates disorder. Now, specifically in regard to sexual sin, and even more specifically in regard to homosexual sex, I just want you to know that I, I desire to honor the complexity of the issue. But no matter what, I will honor first and foremost what God's Word has to say about this. It, it is also my commitment to you as your pastor to work toward shepherding and discipling people to be God-centered in relationship to the issues that we have discussed these last two Sundays. Not me-centered, not culture-centered, not emotionally-centered, not politically-centered, but gospel-centered for everyone. And so now, with that in mind, I want to talk a little bit about moving forward, some of the obstacles that all of us face. And when I say all of us, I mean all of us. Primarily, I will speak to Christians, but all of us, those of us who are secure in our faith, those who are unsure about our faith, and those of us who might be confused about faith. First thing I would say is this. Both extremes in this cultural discussion of homosexuality, so the, the Christian extreme and the gay community extreme. There's always extremes in every group, right? Okay. Both extremes have tried to categorize homosexuality as special, and we need to understand that it's really not. So for you extreme Christians, it's not the unforgivable sin. It is not the worst sin. Many have painted it that way, and I would suggest that there's a distorted understanding of the gospel if you think it's the unforgivable sin. But on the other side, it's also not a virtue. The homosexual life is not more sensitive or more superior in any way. But rather than complaining about how the, the gay community has painted this, I want to speak to Christians on this. It's my responsibility to speak to the extreme Christians. Author Wesley Hill who has been in, 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 in many ways on both sides of this issue for most of his life, he writes this, The Christian struggle with homosexuality is unique in many ways, but not completely so. The dynamics of human sinfulness and divine mercy and grace are the same for all of us, regardless of the particular temptations that, or, or weaknesses that we face. So, so we cannot categorize this sin as somehow special or different. Okay? Also, both people, uh, people on both sides of this conversation have set us all back by entering this, this discussion driven only by anger and or fear. Anger and or fear. And again, I'm going to speak to the church. Church, this does not help anything. If you're going to enter this conversation only driven by anger or fear, it's better if you just pull your heels back and wait. Wait until you've let the emotions run through and we can dialogue about this with, 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 with some measure of calmness and compassion. Now, I, I will say this, however, compassionately and resolutely. We must not allow our culture to shape our worldview. That's really important. Only God through Jesus Christ can do that. Now, I, most, I know some of you may not share that, 
that perspective. But you need to understand that's the foundation of the elders of all the redemption churches, and we can stand on no other foundation. That's what will shape our worldview. As a result, we have a clear responsibility, not only to God, but to all of you on this issue. And here's what, I, what I'm talking about. I think uh, Rosaria Butterfield says it best. I mentioned her book last week, quoted from it last week. She's the lesbian woman who was thoroughly devoted to her community and to her lifestyle, who was over the course of three years confronted by the gospel and began to read scripture and was converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, very early on in her struggle with the gospel, she wrote this. During this time of struggle, others tried to help me. A Methodist pastor and dean of the chapel at Syracuse University believed that I did not have to give up my lesbianism to honor God. Indeed, he told me, since God made me a lesbian, I gave God, I gave God honor by living an honorable lesbian life. He told me I could have Jesus and my lesbian lover. This was a very appealing prospect. But I had been reading and rereading scripture and there are no such marks of postmodern both and in the Bible. So she gets the gospel. She understands that there's a distinction and there's a decision to be made. But she also then goes on to unpack once she, did get, once she was converted by the gospel that it wasn't that easy. Far too many of us Christians look at people in sin and go, you just need to stop this sin and trust in Jesus and everything's going to be fine, and then that's it. And we don't realize that it's hard. Conversion is, hard. Conversion is not always muffins and cupcakes. For some people, there is the disastrous reality of conversion. The practical, everyday outworking of conversion for many, and I would say including me, but especially for the gay person, can be disastrous and certainly unattractive. You will experience loss. You will feel loss in conversion. Butterfield, for instance, she talks about having a true Garden of Gethsemane experience. She asked repeatedly that God would take the cup of conversion from her. She begged God not to save her because the cup meant to her the loss of her career, the loss of her community, and the loss of, of life as she knew it. But ultimately, she submitted. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. She could not do this of her own power. It was Jesus Christ in her doing the work. And this clearly reminds us that the metaphor for the Christian life is death and resurrection. It is not mild reform. And God is enough through Jesus Christ. And if God's grace is enough, then when the church decides to interpret sin and grace as a both-and proposition, the church actually short-circuits God's grace. When in the name of compassion, we allow for behavior that violates God's will, rather than allowing God to do the work of the Holy Spirit in a sinner's life, we short-circuit grace. So what happens in churches all the time, I see this all the time, is God is doing a work in someone's life, time-consuming, challenging work, and someone in the church comes along and stops that work, not intentionally necessarily, but stops it nonetheless because they don't like the tension that all that work of God in that person's life is causing. And then they allow someone to engage in behavior that puts their relationship with God at risk. And this is done allegedly out of love and in the name of compassion, but in reality, the person from the church simply can't stand the tension 
And they don't like the pain that the person is going through because sometimes conversion is painful. And we must see that far too often we use the word love to justify all sorts of behavior and actions that really aren't done out of love or wisdom. They're done out of fear and discomfort. And we Christians need to understand that. Something else we need to consider about the issue of homosexuality and the need for the church to be sensitive in the midst of this issue is this. Again, I'm quoting a lot from Wesley Hill. It's a great book, Washed in Waiting. He is a gay but celibate Christian, and he makes an important point for the church to wrestle with, and it actually has to do with heterosexual singles. He says that as he began to trust his church and unpack his feelings in his church community of same-sex attraction, his desire to yield to those desires, and the tremendous feeling of injustice that because of his orientation, he may never experience the kind of romantic intimacy that God allows for heterosexuals, a number of, uh, of single Christians challenged him on that. He's saying God is not just because I'll never experience romantic intimacy. But they stopped him and they reminded him, listen, Christianity is no guarantee that anyone is ever going to have romantic intimacy. Many Christians have lived their whole lives without ever experiencing romantic love and intimacy, both homosexual and heterosexual. Many Christian singles who deeply desire companionship with a heterosexual partner never have that desire fulfilled and they're troubled by the homosexual claim that the church must somehow come, go about providing this for gay people. What are we doing for single heterosexuals? Nothing. Hill says that it was this community's willingness to confront him and it was critical for his understanding of the true gospel and he appreciated it. He said it brought a new perspective to him. Now, ultimately, I will say this. It is the church's responsibility to quit whining and really be family to people who are struggling with this. And I'll tell you what, uh, John Stott, the great preacher John Stott, says it this way, and he puts it better than me, so I'm just going to read you his quote. At the heart of the homosexual condition is a deep loneliness, the natural human hunger for mutual love, a search for identity, and a longing for completeness. If homosexual people cannot find these things in the local church family, we have no business to go on using that expression. The alternative is not between warm physical relationship of homosexual intercourse and the pain of isolation in the cold, there is a third option, namely a Christian environment of love, understanding, and support. I do not think that there is any need to encourage homosexual people to disclose their sexual inclinations to everybody. This is neither necessary nor helpful. But they do need at least, at least one confidant in the church to whom they can unburden themselves who will not despise or reject them but will support them with friendship and prayer. Come on, church, that is our call. Now, I got about five minutes, so I'm going to take eight. I want to close, sorry, I'm going to close with some comments on the politics of gay marriage. Some of you have been waiting two weeks for me to talk about this, and you're wondering, is he going to avoid it? No. We're not going to avoid it. We're not going to do the old end run. We're going to talk about it right now, okay? And I'm going to talk to you as your pastor on this. Uh, some of you have, are, uh, have already stated, you know, gay marriage is a done deal, can't be stopped, let's just get on board. Well, whether or not gay marriage is a fait accompli, I, I, I don't know. I mean, literally, the jury is still, well, the judges are still out on this. 
The justices are still out. But what concerns me is the temptation among so many Christians to just go with the flow because that offers the least amount of tension. That offers the least amount of discomfort. And here's the assumption that I hear all the time. The nation no longer shares our morality and we must not impose our view on others so we might as well go along, especially since it seems as though this is an issue of civil rights anyway. Well, how hard Christians should actively fight against same-sex marriage, I think, is a matter for wisdom, and we can have that conversation somewhere else. But that we should not support it, I believe, is a matter of biblical principle. To advocate for it, to tell friends at work and in your neighborhood and around, that you think it's fine, Paul says this is sin. To support it publicly or privately is to, as Romans 1.32 says, give approval to those who practice the very things that God promises to judge. And if you are concerned about civil rights, me too. There are, there, there, there are things about the way homosexuals are treated that gravely concern me, and they should concern you as well. But I believe that the civil rights approach to gay marriage is, is really a misapplication of wisdom in this area. And, and by the way, we don't have time to go through it all, but I would encourage you to go online and read Vody Bauckham's essay titled, Gay is Not the New Black. Uh, Vody is a, an African-American scholar, and it might be interesting for you to read what an African-American has, a scholar, by the way, has to say about the civil rights argument for homosexuality. So, my goal in all of this is to encourage us, the church, to be the church. Jesus says in Matthew 5, what, is, what good is salt that loses its saltiness? Or, or, or what, what use is light that is placed under a, a bowl? Arcadia, we need to be salt and light in the midst of this, no matter how hard that is. And trust me, it's going to be hard. But we have the power of the gospel power of the gospel. Here's the problem. When the state sanctions homosexual relationships and gives its blessing, we'll all become even more confused about sexual, sexual practice and identity. Marriage gets reduced to a type of partnership that provides attractive benefits and sexual convenience, but cannot offer the intimacy that is described in Genesis or the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testaments. Uh, Doug Coleman, who's a Reformed pastor, in 2001, I think prophetically wrote these words. Again, it's a little bit longer quote, but hang with me on it. It's really important. He writes, It is the popular misconception that marriage is a mere social convention or quaint, tra quaint tradition invented by the brain of man that has led to the denigrating of this holy relation, the multiplication of unspeakable immorality, the common unrest between husbands and wives, and the gradual disintegration of society. Here's a question. Are we better off or worse off as a result of the sexual freedom movement in the 1960s? Undeniably, we are worse off, and it's even getting worse now. If marriage exists merely by human authority, then men and women may do with it or conduct themselves in it as they please. They may redefine it or they may abandon it altogether. But if marriage is a divine institution, and it is one of three, only three or four that God has ordained, then it is governed by a higher authority. It becomes then a matter of obedience, and the conduct of husbands and wives within marriage is a conduct for which they must give an account to God. 
I want to remind you, that's in 2001. Also, we need to remember that if Jesus is raised, then he is Lord. And that means that his authoritative claim on our lives reaches all the way down and all the way in. And you and I have no right to stand before Jesus and insist upon our definitions of masculinity, femininity, marriage, love, and sexuality. He gets to write the definitions, even when they go against our deepest desires. And we also need to courageously remember that in and of itself, a desire does not make something right. A desire does not make something right. Neither does a majority of people who say so. We need to be careful with this majority rules thing because sooner or later they're going to get around to something that you don't like and the majority is going to rule against you. Did you see Jesus or the disciples doing any majority rule stuff in here? Nope. Absolutely not. Now, let me say this and, and then I'll have a quote and we'll be done. No one morally condemns a lion or a tiger for acting instinctually. You know, we watch the lions and the tigers chase down an antelope and it's gruesome and everything, but we don't say, thou shalt not kill the antelope. We don't morally condemn. He's just acting instinctually. Yet shouldn't the moral calculations for human beings involve something more than the ascent to biochemistry of desire? Do you understand that all behavior, all behavior is biological? And therefore, there is a need for us to exercise some self-control. Aren't we more than animals? We have souls, bodies. We are created in God's image. And to legitimize homosexuality or pornography or adultery or any sexual sin just because it's natural and biological, is ironically to treat a person as less than human. And so the answer to that is the same answer we've had throughout this entire series and throughout this entire morning. I've got nothing else. I've got the, G the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's the resurrected Christ. That's the only place we can go for power. And we need to remember that the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's holiness. And only the resurrected Christ can give us that holiness. I have read so many essays in the last six or eight weeks on this issue, more than on any other issue I've ever preached on. Last week, I was handed a paper by a seminary student it was magnificent. It was one of the two or three best essays that I read in the last six or eight weeks. And I want to end today by quoting from it. It's the end of his paper, and it's, it's so beautifully written. There's no way I could have come up with anything better. The only thing that troubles me about this is that it wasn't a Fuller Seminary student. It was a Phoenix Seminary student. And you know I work at Fuller, so that was really hard for me. Here's what he writes. The church must always act with love and compassion toward people who struggle with homosexuality. Although we never affirm homosexual conduct is morally right, we remind them that the gospel offers the good news of forgiveness of sins and real hope for a transformed life. This much is clear. We are all sinners who need to be reconciled to God. The homosexual community does not need to hear any more sneering from Christians. Instead, they need to hear that the ground is level at the foot of the cross 
and that redemption, grace, and forgiveness are available to all who repent and follow Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for teaching us these truths. We pray that you would give us the courage and the wisdom to submit to them. Amen.